All right, good morning. We want to be praying, uh, especially for Rick, a uh, very sad time for him and the family. Body up to Newcastle to the coroner uh, to do a um, investigation or a autopsy for the cause of death. They don't really know. So that's um, more grief uh, for Rick. And he's over in Wagga at the moment. Hopefully, he's coming back uh, this week. So I want to be in prayer for him. Funeral Sam uh, will be earliest process, possibly. Well, uh, celebration of Christmas. Bit of sweet moment. The Bible says it's. Go to the house of mourning, the house of feasting. That's the opportunity we have to think about life and death. I want to encourage you as well uh, to come to the carol service tonight. Uh, I'm going to preach the gospel. If you have any unsaved folk you would like to uh, invite, be a clear gospel message. And I trust that uh, you'll be here as well. We can enjoy our fellowship. A new kitchen downstairs. Dishwasher's working. So, uh, adding fellowship with knights. I want you to open your Bibles, if you will, uh, this morning to Revelation 21. Revelation 21. Almost finished our study in Revelation. It may be uh, four more messages, perhaps, and we'll be done. Hopefully, in the new year. Revelation 21. Some of you have lived in Sydney. And uh, even in Blacktown, for your entire life. Uh, I've lived in Bochum Hills for nearly all my life. Uh, and yet, as the years have rolled by, probably noticed that uh, it does seem like only a short stay. Because in reality, we are just passing through this life. Then, of course, we will spend forever in the presence of the Lord, if, if we know the Lord. And what God has done in this chapter really is try to capture our attention, uh, to kindle an affection in our hearts for a city that he has prepared for us. So once again, uh, I want to read the description of this city as we have it here. And you should look at this passage really almost as the opening of a will, because this is our inheritance from the Lord. Beginning at the end of verse 9, John records that the angel said to him, Come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. He carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Also, she had a great and high wall with twelve gates, and twelve angels at the gates, and names written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. Now the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. The city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth. He measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. Length, breadth, and height are equal. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of an angel. The construction of its wall was of jasper, and the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth 
amethyst. Twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl. The street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. But there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Chapter 22. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp, nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light. And they shall reign forever and ever. And he said to me, These words are faithful and true. The Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servant the things which must shortly take place. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I want to begin where we left off last time, really, by continuing to look at the descriptions that we have of this city in chapter 21. And next time, I plan to finish with those first five verses in chapter 22, which would be the first day of the new year. Let's just briefly recover what we saw last time, uh, which is the fact that this is a city that the people of God have been anticipating ever since there was such a thing as the people of God. Why do I say that? Because when God appeared to Abraham, who was an idol worshiper, the Bible says that he entered into a covenant with this man. Imagine that. Stephen preaches in Acts that the glory of God appeared to this man, and for reasons entirely unknown to us, he revealed himself to him and entered into a covenant with him. And one of the promises of that covenant was that he would inherit a land, and he would possess all of it. In fact, you remember that when Abraham entered that land, that God told him to walk the length and the breadth of it. And he said that everywhere the sole of his foot stepped on, that land would be his. However, even in this land, this man lived as a foreigner. The Bible says that he lived there as a pilgrim or a stranger because he was looking for something else. That to me is incredible. That does not square up with the bestseller by Joel Osteen, Your Best Life Now. I mean, he has what God promised him in this life. It's right there. But he's looking for something else. And the lesson for us is that really, we should hold what God gave us here with loose hands. Because we only have it for a short time anyway. Now, what was he looking for? He was looking for, the Bible says, a city with foundations, meaning a city that has a security and a permanence to it because of what it was founded upon. That was a city that Abraham couldn't find even in the promised land because it was a city whose builder, the architect, whose constructor, whose maker was the Lord God himself. Now, Abraham lived a long time before the birth of Jesus Christ, right about two millennia. So way back then, God's people were looking for this city. 
And only the Lord knows how much closer we are to it now in the 21st century than they were to it in the 2000 BC. I do know that the time between now and living in that city is at least a thousand and seven years away, right? Because we still have the tribulation to come, of course, which will be most unpleasant for those who are living on the earth. But I really can't tell you how much I'm looking forward to that thousand years to follow. Because those of us who know the Lord today will be glorified. We are going to have bodies that are entirely remade. So many of you are happy about that. Our minds will be the mind of Christ in every way. Our will will be perfectly in tune to the will of God. And in that state, we will enjoy 10 centuries in this world, but a world that is greatly renovated by the power of God. When all of that is over, and the present heavens and the earth are rolled up and they pass away. They just collapse in a great roar of heat and sound, as First Peter describes it. And then God makes a new heaven and a brand new earth. When that happens, this city will descend. And this will be our eternal home. Now, there's no question about that because of how verses 9 and 10 connect that city with us. You remember this from last time. Uh, we are the bride of Christ, and yet this city is called the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And that's because our final habitation is so closely identified with us that we are, as it were, one and the same. And since we are told in this passage that the Lamb will be present in this city, you can be sure that His bride will be present with Him as well. We are certainly with the Lamb in the city, and this is your eternal home. So today, just, just, just allow the Lord to give you a glimpse of what will be yours. Remember what John Bunyan said in the book Pilgrim's Progress when he dreamed about that man on a journey. Bunyan said, just read my book and it will make a traveler out of you. And when you read about Christian, you know, he's occasionally opening the book and he's reflecting upon the celestial city as his final destination. And that's what motivates him. Bunyan was right. There should be something about this that entices us, that motivates us to move on, to move past, to move out of our temporary mindset and to have no regrets when we do because our affections are set on things above while we lived here on the earth. Now, when people build cities here on the earth, they use the materials that are available to them. I've had the opportunity uh, to travel uh, wide and far uh, over the years uh, in my life, and I've seen places where people live in homes that are made entirely of mud and thatch with a dirt floor. I've been in parts of the world where uh, people's economic standard means that they can live in a city where their homes uh, are built primarily of concrete blocks. And then there are places where the homes are made of clay or timber or weatherboard or metal sheets or brick. And when we talk about a brick home, which probably uh, describes most of the homes in Sydney, it doesn't mean, of course, that those homes are entirely constructed of brick. There are other materials uh, that are used. But when you describe the houses in a new subdivision, you might say to somebody, you know, in that subdivision, the houses are all made of brick. What they really mean, of course, is that it's brick veneer, uh, where just the exterior wall is brick. And it's really a you know, mix of brick, and they've got some cladding in their walls and so on. Well, I think that's certainly what is meant at the end of verse 18, when we are told that this city was pure gold. It doesn't mean that there were no other materials used, but in general, you can describe the material of that city as being constructed with gold. And gold, as you know, is one of the most precious metals available in this old creation. Gold, silver, platinum, and palladium are the four most precious metals on the earth today. 
and people are prepared to do almost anything in order to obtain more of those valuable substances. However, gold is the most malleable and ductile of all the metals. Uh, you know, they can spin it out uh, as fine as a thread and use it in sewing cloth. Or you can actually take an ounce of gold and hammer it out so thin it will cover 28 square meters. That's one ounce or 28 grams of gold. It's no wonder then that an ounce closed this Friday at $2,638 an ounce. There's just so little of it in all the earth. In fact, you know, they say that if you put all of the gold that has ever been mined into one place, it would not amount to anything more than a cube less than 22 meters per side. That's hard to believe, but that's why they say that the gold that is in your ring quite likely belonged to somebody else millennia ago. In fact, if you think about it, uh, you might be wearing something that was part of Solomon's treasury. I don't know, because nobody parts with this stuff lightly. Nobody destroys it. Nobody discards it. This is hoarded stuff. So think of this city. And remember, of course, uh, to personalize this as your eternal home. It isn't just that your future home in the city is largely constructed of gold in quantities that we've never seen in this creation. But in verse 18, it is a gold that is so pure, it is like clear glass. And we'll come back to that in a moment when we look at the streets. But imagine living in a home that is built with something like that. But keep that in mind. And then notice in verses 19 and 20, that God adds something to this picture, I think, that is just stunning. And that is the foundation stones. Now, for some reason, uh, John can see these stones in his vision. And I found a picture online uh, of what it would look like to have all of these stones uh, laid on top of one another. You can see the picture and kind of what it looks like. Now, the color uh, and the identification of some of these stones, a little bit of a debate there because the names and the colors may have differed a bit in ancient times. But from... uh, what we know today, this is kind of what we think it would look like. But let, let this just kind of, uh, you know, fire up your imagination a little bit as I go through these foundation stones quickly. Now, last time, uh, we talked a lot about Jasper. I'm ready for that Jasper in my Christmas stocking. And uh, it says that uh, this is the first foundation stone. Now, I do want to point out for just a moment that we don't really know if it's talking here about the stone that is immediately under the walls, or it's talking about the bottommost foundation stone as you have it here in this picture. In other words, is John starting at the top of the foundations and saying that the first one is Jasper, and then he's working his way down? Or is he starting way at the lowest level and then working his way up the wall? We don't really know that. But we do know that the wall itself is Jasper. So it may be that the wall sits right on the first foundation, which is Jasper, or it may be that the wall is Jasper, and then the bottommost foundation is Jasper. So you got Jasper at the bottom and Jasper at the top, and all the other stones in between. I'm just pointing that out. But you may recall that the color of Jasper, for the most part, is a deep red. And uh, you can see that there. And sapphire, of course, is a deep blue. Uh, sometimes it'll have gold flecks in it. Chalcedony, which it took me a while to learn how to pronounce that, but it's chalcedony, uh, is a pale blue, even a greenish color. You can just kind of imagine that pale blue merging out of a deeper blue. Uh, We all know that emerald is a bright, deep green. Sardonyx, that's how you pronounce that, verse 20, that is a layered stone. Uh, The sardon is the word for red. Onyx tends to be crystal in color. Sardonyx is typically red and white, and it's kind of layered in the way that you see it there. The sardius is a reddish-brown, almost a rust color. I think the picture looks a little bit orangey. Uh, Chrysolite is actually a bright yellow-green. Unlike there, it looks more gray, uh, but maybe some of it's gray. Uh, The next foundation, a beryl, 
that's uh, actually a, a light aquamarine, but it also could be a deep yellow, like you see there. The ninth foundation is topaz. Topaz is a warm golden yellow. Chrysoprase is a yellow-green color. The modern stone chrysoprase is actually apple green. Uh, jacinth is a deep orange-red, and amethyst, of course, is purple. And if that's the uppermost foundation, uh, then on top of that would be a jasper wall that's over 60 meters tall. It's truly remarkable when you think about it. But maybe best of all, I think, are the gates in verse 21. The gates, it says, are each made of a single pearl. Let me tell you something about pearls. Uh, pearls in the ancient world were the most coveted of all gems. And what's the difference between a pearl and any other semi-precious stone or gem? The difference, of course, is that a pearl is made by a living organism. In other words, there's no way to enhance its beauty by your workmanship. It's entirely the work of some other living creature. That's one reason why in the ancient world they were so highly coveted. In fact, one of the reasons why uh, Caesar invaded the British Isles was because he had heard that they had great pearl fisheries. And I think this had to be behind uh, our Lord's parable in Matthew 13 when he talks about the kingdom of heaven uh, being like a man who discovers a beautiful pearl. And out of his desire for that, he's willing to sell every other possession that he has in order to obtain just that one pearl. An illustration like that in that culture uh, would make total sense because it was the coveted of all the gems. Of course, the Lord was saying that getting your place in the kingdom is like a guy who gets it figured out that all of his goods, all of his possessions just kind of pale in value when you compare it to being in the kingdom. Now, I discovered that the largest natural pearl ever found was discovered by a fisherman in the Philippines. Go to the Philippines. Now, right off the coast of Palawan, 2006, he dug it up or pulled it up, and then he kept it under his bed for 10 years as a good luck sign. Uh, it wasn't good luck, though, because he didn't sell it. <laughs> uh, you can see there, there's a picture of it. it weighs 34 kilograms. It's 61 centimeters wide, 30, 30 centimeters long, and it's anything but round, you can see in the picture. It looks like kind of a giant clamshell, doesn't it? But because it's so big, because it's so rare, the estimated value of that pearl, you ready for it? $130 million. For an ugly pearl, 60 centimeters wide. Of course, I'm telling you that so that you can compare it to the size of the pearls these gates are going to be. 60 meters tall. So, keep that in your mind, and then note the composition of the streets below in verse 21. Now you have to understand, of course, that this is referring to the whole network of streets. Right? So you've got streets coming in from each of those gates, but then you've got the word street there referring to the whole network that is going to ribbon this entire massive city. And those streets are pure gold. Now, how much bitumen or cement or crushed stone do you suppose it takes in order to construct a single kilometer of highway in Australia? Well, those of you who do that kind of thing, you would know it depends on the width and the thickness of the road to do with where it is in the country, whether it's hot or cold and so on. But one kilometer of one lane of a freeway is estimated to cost taxpayers $5.4 million. That's bitumen. So what about a road system in a cube that's 2,400 kilometers wide and long, not to speak of the height? What does a 2,400-kilometer road of pure gold look like? Well, that's just going from the gate at the west to the gate at the east. And keep in mind, of course, that this is a gold unlike anything in the first creation because it says this one's like transparent glass. 
Now let's pause for a moment because I really think that God intends that we use our imaginations a little bit here. And he gave us imaginations to use for his honor. And when he gives you hints of things like this with just enough facts to get your imagination in gear, you really need to picture something in your mind. So picture here a brilliantly golden city that is accented with deep red in the walls, with these layers of color in the foundation. So the whole thing is kind of resting on a rainbow of sparkling gems. They need to envision these vast, smooth pearls as the gateways. And through those, you can see these transparent roads of beautiful gold. And all of it is aglow with the pure light of God's presence. And it really is God taking the most precious and coveted substances from his first creation and just lavishing them in the place of your future habitation. You know what that tells me? It tells me there won't be one thing in this life that you're going to look back on with any regret that you don't possess anymore. I'm, I'm certain that there won't be one thing that we ever forfeited in order to follow Christ or that we sacrificed for His service. That we won't look back upon in this city and we're going to say, you know, that's, that's the one decision I wish I never made. That'll never happen. Giving up your inheritance on earth to avoid arguments in the family that led to peace and the opening of the gospel to your brother or sister. You won't miss that inheritance of that city. Using your house for ministry until it's worn down and everything's broken and you can't afford to fix it. You won't miss the new house you forfeited for the Lord's sake in that city. Giving up certain luxuries so that you can tithe to the Lord every week. You won't miss that 10% in that city. You wouldn't even miss the 90% what you did with that either. You know, when I was a boy, I all my prized possessions in a little wooden chest. About yay big. It used to be, a, uh, be a, a chest that held chocolates. It was a red tulips chest. Those of you in the 80s might know what that is. Uh, in that chest, I kept my prized marbles that I won in the school playground. I kept my orange autograph book with all the autographs of my friends and teachers. Kept a couple firecrackers in there, just in case. I had a mini spy kit. I had a few other toys and trinkets. I had the teeth the dentist pulled out, which were treasures to me when I got braces. I had a few coins that I thought were rare, at least to me. I pulled that chest out many times as a boy, and I would go through... My precious possessions, like Gollum, you know, looking at the ring. My precious. Nobody touched these things. The lock on the front, you know. Then a big tropical storm swept through Sydney in the 1990s. All of my childhood possessions were lost. Marbles were lost. My kit was lost. My teeth were lost. My big box of prized comic books were lost. But you know, apart from the other day, you know, I never sit around really and think about it that much. I feel a little bit of sadness, of course, but those things were lost nearly 30 years ago. And I've moved on. Why? Well, that was my childhood. The only reason I have any sadness today is because it's nostalgic to me. And because those comic books would have been worth something today. Pastor Brian said last week he was reading the Silmarillion when he was like 10 years old. I was reading Asterix. <laughs> All ended up underwater. But really, those things have zero value to me uh, apart from the memories. And that will surely be the case for all of us when it comes to anything. We covet so much today and it's so difficult for us to let go of in this life. It'll all be meaningless when we stand on those streets of pure gold. We look around at what God has given us to enjoy for all eternity. In fact, the only enduring value our 
past possessions will have is if we were able to squeeze something out of them, the glory of God, and for the service of his people. And I think that really comes to the fore when you look at verses 22 and following where our attention is now turned to the Lord of the city himself. John introduces this in verse 22 when he brings up the issue of a temple. You ever been in a city or a town that had no church building? In fact, what would you think about uh, any people in a major city today if you visited there and you discovered that there was nowhere to be seen any mosque or any synagogue or any cathedral or church or temple or even a shrine of some kind? What would you conclude about those people? You would conclude one of two things. You would say that they were entirely ignorant of the existence of deity or that they turned themselves entirely into atheists. And I'm guessing, really, that there is no such city on earth without a religious structure of some kind. But you know, in the city that God is making for us, that will be the case. There's no structure at all in which people will meet for worship. Look at it in verse 22. I saw no temple in it. Why not? The answer is given. For the Lord God Almighty Himself and its Lamb and the Lamb are its temple. Now, that just makes sense, I think. Uh, I mean, what was the tabernacle used for in the Old Testament, except as a place for the people to meet with God? What was the temple used for? It was a place to meet with God. What are our bodies today in the New Covenant, except a temple for the Holy Spirit? What's happening when God's people gather together? Well, it's a multiplicity of bodies indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and together they make up a living temple. Well, in the future, there's going to be a whole city in which God will be personally present. And when His presence is fixed among His people for for all eternity like that, well, there won't be any need for another religious structure whatsoever. In fact, not even the city itself is a temple. No, the immediate fixed presence of God himself serves as the temple. And we, as his people, will be able to meet with him anytime. In fact, that's why chapter 20, verse 6 in Revelation tells us that we shall be priests of God and of Christ in that day. We will all have access to him in his very person. And when it comes to light, verses 23 and 24, it's magnificent to think about the fact that God's own glory is the light. I want to give you a very quick succession of verses here that I think will really fill this out for you a little bit. There's an expression that is used in James 1.17 that I think is quite interesting when it refers to God as the Father of lights, plural. What does that mean? Well, in Psalm 136, verse 7, it says that God made the great lights. And that wording comes from uh, Genesis 1. Now, on a typical day, uh, we don't go out uh, and look at the sun. We can't look at the sun. We don't see the sun. And uh, we don't look at the moon at night and talk about them as one of God's lights. As God's lights up there. We don't say that. But that's how he refers to them. And he says that he made those lights. As Genesis says, the sun to rule by day and the moon and the stars to rule by night. Now, listen to James again. God is the father of those lights. What does that mean? If you're the father of something, you are its source. So clearly, it's a reference to God in his creative role of making those lights. Now, when you come to Isaiah 60 verse 19... God says to his people that the day is coming when the sun shall no longer be your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give light to you, but the Lord will be to you an everlasting light, and your God will be implied, will be your glory. Well, how can God do that? Well, because he's the father of the great lights. He can dispose of them if he wills. And the fact is, as Paul writes in 1 Timothy, God actually dwells in unapproachable light. 
In Pilgrim's Progress, Bunyan tried to capture this when Christian and faithful draw very near to the celestial city, which is lit by the glory of God. Bunyan says that they couldn't yet look on that light except through an instrument that was especially prepared for them. Because this is a blinding, unapproachable light. Now here's where I'm going with this. That light and that glory is concentrated in a lamp. Look at the verse. My version says, the lamp is its light. Some of you will have the word lamp, and that's because that is the Greek word uh, actually for lamp. It's better translated lamp. Uh, This is the same term that's used in Matthew 5.15 when Jesus admonished us not to hide our lamp under a bushel. It is the lamp in Luke 15.8. Remember the woman lighted when she was uh, searching for a missing coin in her house. Well, uh, in this city, the lamb is its lamp. Uh, You remember when our Lord was on this earth, that he actually threw open the shade on that lamp for three of his disciples. He took those men on a mountain. He was transfigured before them for just a moment. Don't ever think of the transfiguration as a light from heaven spotlighting him on that mountain. That's not at all what is described. What is described is his own glory just, just radiating out from within him. It made his clothes look wider than any launderer could make them, the Scripture says, and his face shone like the sun. You can imagine that. Then, shade was pulled back, and it was gone. That's why the Apostle John can write years later when he says, we saw his glory, and it was the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Well, that glory is going to be on permanent display like a lamp lighting that city. And remember that the streets are transparent gold. Remember that the wall of jasper is a transparent reddish stone. The gold of the city is like crystal. You can imagine that brilliant, blinding glory from the Lamb just shining out and being refracted through all of that. This is something far beyond anything that the human mind can even begin to conceive of. No wonder then that verses 24 to 27 tell us that the nations can actually walk in that light because it has such great magnitude. Let's turn our attention now to these nations, and that really raises, I think, a serious question for us, doesn't it? Who are these nations? And I wasn't prepared for that one. I thought the nations were finished. Last time they were mentioned, you remember, that the end of those 10 centuries when Satan is loosed for a little season and it says he deceives the nations and they rise up against the rightful Lord of the earth and God destroys them in a moment. Who are these guys? Where did these nations come from? Well, there are many different interpretations for this, I can assure you. I found about seven. Some of them are quite bizarre. Uh, For example, there's a viewpoint that These are the nations that went into the bottomless pit in judgment. But then, in eternity, they're going to be redeemed. And uh, they're going to come back because God wants to save all people everywhere. And he will save all the nations in the end. He's going to bring them all back to heaven. We're all going to live together. In other words, it's universalism. Universalism. That is certainly not the case. So let me just give to you a series of four points from the text probably the best place to start. And this will give us a possible identification of these nations. So here we go. Number one, they exist and live and produce outside of the city. These are people, they clearly exist, live and produce outside of the city because the passage speaks of them bringing their glory and honor into the city. But they must live outside the city and produce something that can be called their glory and honor out there, which may be some kind of goods and services that they they can produce. That's their glory and their honor. Secondly, they evidently exist in people groups, 
which is behind their being called nations. This is the term that is translated in the New Testament as Gentiles. And it refers to people in their groupings as identifiable nationalities. Now, whether or not it means the same uh, when we say nations today, uh, we don't know. But it definitely, definitely is talking about people groups of some kind. Okay? So, so there's some kind of distinction here. And I think that's supported by the fact that there are kings of the earth among them. In verse 24. Thirdly, if you look at the end of verse 27, if they're going to enter the city, then it's apparent that every one of those people does have his name written in the Lamb's book of life. Elsewhere in Revelation, we are told that all names were written in that book before the foundation of the world. So we're talking about people who exist outside the city in identifiable people groups but their names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And then fourthly, they do appear to be differentiated from the bride of Christ. Now, why am I saying that? Because the bride is so closely identified with the city in which she lives, and these nations clearly don't live in the city. Now, that still leaves us with the question of who or what these nations are. So, I'm going to give you a possibility. The Bible does not say. I want to make that clear. But I want to give you a little sanctified speculation. All right? During the millennial period, you will have an unprecedented population explosion on the earth. The Bible says even a child will be a century old. And while it's true that at the end of, end of that time, Satan will go out and deceive the nations and turn them against the Lord, does that mean that every single individual who is born and lives in the millennium will turn against Christ in the end? Well, honestly, even without a passage like this, it's difficult to conceive of that actually being the case, and that no one would remain loyal to him, and no one would be truly regenerated during the millennium. But, you know, they're all going to be deceived. They're all going to rise up against the Lord, against His bride, the glorified church. They're all going to be lost in the end. That is very difficult to imagine, especially in the conditions of the millennium. So the question is this, what about those people who were truly regenerated and with all their heart, they really genuinely submitted to the reign and the kingship of Jesus Christ during those 10 centuries? What about those people? Well, they're not going to be deceived by Satan in the end. So where are they? Well, we might have thought that they would just become one with the bride of Christ. But possibly they are the nations. They're not any less the children of God. They're not any less Christ's own. But for God's own purposes, they are kept distinct from his bride. But in any case, you'll notice that it tells us that one of the objectives God has in mind for these people is to receive their glory and their honor. Look at it, verse 24. It says, the nations of those who are saved. Now that phrase, of those who are saved, is not in the best manuscripts. That's why you won't see it in some of your versions. It's not in the ESV. So maybe somebody added it. But in any case, they are saved. And they will walk in the light of this city and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Verse 26, and they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations, the people groups, into this city. So I think this really is a magnificent picture. Here you have for all of eternity the prospect of uninhibited prosperity in the new earth. There's no hindrance whatsoever to productivity. Like the Garden of Eden. It's an endless day. Every day is perfect. And like Adam and Eve, who could have kept that garden forever, right, if they didn't sin, here is the prospect of forever and ever in an endless day and perfect bliss in a new creation. So what do you think, then, are the prospects for the nations producing 
things of glory and honor that they can now give back the Lamb. Well, in verse 27, there are some who will never enter that city. They will not be members of the Bride of Christ. They will not be among the nations who are in the new earth and have something to bring as a tribute to Christ. They are the rejected. Because nothing, it says, that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie will ever come into it. Now remember, this is not referring to the existence of unclean and abominable lying people in the new earth. All right? It's not as if they exist on the new earth, but they live out in the burbs, you know. We're out in some kind of homeless shelter. You know, they can't get into the city because they don't have status. No, it's not, it's not that. This is written as a warning, really an appeal to the readers of this prophecy before the fulfillment of these things. It's a warning to us. So take that warning to heart. Are you a person and you know that your life is unclean because you haven't experienced the cleansing of Christ's blood? I mean, right through to the end of the book of Revelation, God has set before us the character of a sacrificial lamb. We are confronted with him as a sacrifice right through to the last chapters. He can't miss it. But are you still unclean? Are you a lying individual? You have a double life. You have one life at home with your parents and another life that they know nothing about. And it demands that you have to continually deceive your family and your friends. Well, nothing unclean, no one who practices abomination and lying will ever come into it. These words, chapter 22, verse 6, are faithful and true. And Bunyan portrays Christian and faithful crossing the river, the final river, which is death. They get across to the celestial city and there it hangs up in the clouds. And some of the shining ones come and pick them up and they carry them through the air and they're clothed in these long white garments. They're given crowns and there's music up there and the sounding of the trumpets and finally they're, they're let in at the gate. But they glance back and they see down there on the road a man that they had encountered on their pilgrimage. Now, they encountered many people who also claimed to be pilgrims on their way to the celestial city, but for various reasons, they were not truly the Lord's people. So they see a man that they knew from their journey down there, and his name is Ignorance. Now, he's not ignorant because he was never told, but because he deliberately refused what was in the book that Christian carried. He was quite cavalier about it. He was planning to make his own way to this city. So sure enough, there he is. And he's crossed the river. He's gone through death. And they watch him as he makes his way up the road. Nobody carries him. He knocks at the gate. The gate doesn't open, but someone on the ramparts looks down and they see him and they ask him, well, what do you want? And Christian observes that the man cries out. He says, you know, I've actually seen the king teach in our streets. He says, I've eaten in the presence of the king. He said, I'm here to claim my entrance into the celestial city. So that person told him to wait. Well, he went and consulted about that with the king. And in a short while, he came back and the king said he would not claim him. And the Christians saw the shining ones pick him up as well. They bound him hand and foot. They carried him over to a hill where there was a hole in the side. And they put him in there. And so Christians said, I saw that there is a way to hell even from the gate of heaven. It's Balfour. Your head's bowed and your eyes closed. Are you genuinely a follower of Jesus Christ? Now just consider what I'm asking you for a moment. I'm not asking uh, about your Christianity. 
I want to warn you about measuring your Christianity in terms of your speech and the things that you may do. There's a kind of Christianity, you know, that says Christian things, that attends Christian activities and services, but in its heart is no true Christian. How do you measure that for yourself? It's not difficult. Let me say this. We know if we are sincere before God, that the general direction of our life and our heart is towards the Lord. And although we struggle with the flesh, and although we commit sins, our shame and our regret every day, in general, right, in general, when we open a Bible, we really want to submit to the direction of the Son of God. That is our heart, to submit to what he tells us to do. That's very different from a person who just says Christian things and attends Christian activities. But really, you know, his values are not shaped by, by, by the Bible and Christianity at all. He doesn't have the same values that Christians have. That's all shaped by the world. It's shaped by someone who never opens the Bible. There's a way to hell right out of a Christian home. There's a way to hell right out of the seats of this church. It's imperative that we do exactly as Peter admonishes in his epistle, and that is to make our calling and our election sure. How do you do that? You examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. That examination can easily be measured by our Lord's words in the book of John when he said, you know what, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Are you a follower of the good shepherd? Father, we thank you for what you teach us about our future home. Thankful for the blessing of knowing you. Thankful that so many of us here are your sheep. Father, we pray for any who may have gone astray, that you would bring them back. And any who do not know you, Father, that you would touch their lives and their heart. Bring them to that place of full surrender. May we, may we as a congregation rejoice when they come into the fold. Father, bless us, strengthen us, help us to be a good testimony for the gospel's sake this Christmas. We ask it in the name of our Savior. Amen.